My family and I were here the last time, I believe, in 2019. Uh, so probably not much has happened uh, between now and then. But we are back in America now and happy to be with you this morning. My friend Alexi, uh, who lives in Madagascar, he's a Sakalava man. He had this problem. You see, he was hearing these stories told by missionaries in his village about how God had made the world and everything in it and had made it good, but uh, that something horrible had gone wrong in this good world. And eventually he learned that everyone has this inside them, this horrible wrong that had entered the world. But God. You know, that's interesting, that's found throughout the Bible, but God. And in this case, but God had a rescue plan, a way to restore the broken relationship between man and creation, a way to restore the broken relationship between man and God. And this plan was his son, Jesus Christ, who had lived as a man, but with no wrong, and who died for all of those who put their trust in him. But here was Alexi's problem. These words were penetrating his heart, and he was starting to believe. He even made a profession of faith in that belief, and he was learning. But now his son was sick with a fever, a really high fever. In fact, it was dengue fever, and that claims a lot of Malagasy people every rainy season. And when your son is sick in this context, you take him to the Mwasi, to the witch doctor, uh, for healing. And there's rituals to perform, rites to perform, and you put your faith in the witch doctor, you put your faith in your ancestors who are watching over you and either providing you with a blessing or a curse. And so he asked me, he asked, another missionary, what to do? Well, our reply was, we need to pray about this, right? We need to ask God for protection. We need to ask God for healing. We need to pray. But his family had a fadi. That's just a Malagasy word for taboo, something that you absolutely are prohibited to do, not only by your family, but by your ancestors. And in fact, his father said he would be cut off, separated from his family if he prayed with the missionaries. So what would you do? What should you do? Um, well, just think about how much needs to be known as the missionary to give advice in that situation. Now, I'm guessing most of you have not experienced a situation quite like this, but I would argue that whether or not you are speaking in another language to someone from Madagascar, or you're just speaking to someone down the street in Wilmington. We all need to be aware of the worldview of the people we are interacting with, engaging with. So you, in other words, you can't know where to begin with God's word. Um, you can't know where to, whether, where to begin with his truth um, until you know where the person is coming from. I've been taught that God's word is, it's multifaceted, like a diamond. Um, it's all truth. 
Each facet displays his marvelous truth, but each facet reflects that truth in its own way, and we need to know what does this person that we're in front of or this culture that we're living in in Madagascar, what do they need to hear of that truth? We are living in a country that's, guys, it's multicultural. It's diverse everywhere we look. And many of the people that we are around do not come from cultures that are Christian. Um, and even with communities that are traditionally Christian, like people that would call themselves, I'm an American or I'm a Delawarean. I'm from Tex Texas. You know, people, are, people from Texas usually uh, put the USA aside. They're Texans, right? You know, um, you know Christians, nominal Christians, these are many many different types of people that would describe themselves like this, but simply do not have a Christian worldview. And the degree of, of biblical misunderstanding cannot be overestimated. And so what does this mean for evangelism? As this is uh, Mission Sunday, what does this mean for evangelism, both in Madagascar, Southern Africa, and increasingly everywhere in the United States? Well, it means a few things. One the person that's confronted with God's word is going to have to jettison many things that make up who they are, that make up the worldview that they are a part of. Um, D.A. Carson says they have to be, not just their system can't just be updated, they actually need a whole new operating system, right? The files need to be deleted or destroyed, new files need to be added. It's a, it's a, it's a traumatic process. And this is, facing the truth is always difficult. Um, that's why, you know, the gospel demands repentance and faith. It demands regeneration. It demands the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. But the less there is of a, of a common worldview, of a shared lens through which we see the world, between the Christian and non-Christian, the more traumatic that process is. Um, the more stuff has to be unlearned. And so a lot of times we must start at the beginning. We must go back to the beginning because the gospel message, who Jesus is, what he accomplished through his life and death and resurrection, it doesn't make sense if you don't have those lenses of the Christian worldview. It really, it just does not make sense. You, you, you don't have all of the different categories that uh, a Christian worldview provides. A personal God who comes near but is also transcendent and glorious and other. Um, you know, the nature of human beings, how we're made in the image of God, but how we've we've, we have the curse um, from our, our first parents the spiritual, personal, familial, social effects of that sin, of that fall. Salvation, how that is the answer, the remedy, the rescue plan. God, his holiness, his wrath, his love. All of these things that make up the plot line of the Bible are mostly unknown not just to people that are outside of the Christian faith, but more and more people that are inside, people that would answer yes to whether or not they are a Christian. 
And so we really, we can't agree on the solution that the gospel provides unless we can also agree on the problem that Jesus is confronting. And so our evangelism must be an evangelism that's worldview evangelism, that takes into account the lenses that the people we are talking to are wearing. We have to find ways into their hearts without compromising the gospel. We're building bridges because if there's no bridge into that person's understanding, there will be no true understanding. But we must be faithful to the word. Um, that's hard. It's hard to be faithful and to be a bridge builder. It requires uh, intentionality. It requires thought. Because we should do all we can to share this wonderful message of the gospel, this hope, as Kevin mentioned, we must do all we can to share that in a way that makes sense. This is one reason, reason why the Bible is translated, right? The Bible is one of the few faith texts that is translated often, and it's promoted to be translated. One of my favorite authors and theologians is Lamin Sana. Uh, uh, he, he recently passed. He was from Gambia. He ended up uh, being a professor at Harvard and then Yale. But he's written so much on this necessity of translation for God's word. And he says that that in itself is evangelism, translating God's word into a, a language that, where, that people can understand it. And also the Apostle Paul, he understood all of this. And we can see in Acts the way he approaches people who have the categories that we're talking about, who understand the plot line of the Bible. He speaks to those people one way, but to, to pagans in his time, to, to um, non-Jewish people, to non-God-fearing people, he presents the gospel in a different way. So when he goes into a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, um, he, in this context, he selectively narrates the Old Testament, and he wants to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah um, throughout the Old Testament, presented throughout the Old Testament. So he, he quotes um, the Old Testament. He reasons his way through the text. He argues that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, about the Holy One in David's line. He argues back to Jesus' death and its significance, ultimately the forgiveness of sins and justification before God. And he ends with a fearful judgment against skepticism and unbelief. And so this is Paul's way of interacting with people who know the, their stuff, right? Um, at a certain level, they know their Old Testament. They know, you know, that's their Bible. They know it. But in Acts 17, which is the text I'm going to be using today, we find Paul evangelizing people in Athens who know nothing about any of that, very, very little. And here his approach is completely different. And it has much to teach us um, as we attempt to evangelize in Delaware, in Madagascar. So let's read Acts 17 together, starting with verse 16 to the end. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world, the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for how much it can teach us about who you are and about who we should be in light of that. I pray that this time would be fruitful to all of us here and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's look at this passage and our time in Madagascar using three categories. The situation on the ground, setting the stage, and then finally, the true gospel. So for Paul, the situation on the ground is Athens. Beautiful, ancient, a little in decline, but still very much important. The center of academia, the center of thought for the world. Beautiful buildings, beautiful statues. Gods were everywhere. Um, John Stott says that it, Athens was smothered with idols. Smothered with idols. So picture that. When the Roman Empire went about expanding and conquering, 
they would give the people they conquered their gods, and they would take the gods from the people they con conquered, and there would just be a, 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 a mix mashup of the gods. And they did this because if there was ever to, ever to be a war, a civil war, a battle between the conquered people and Rome, no one would know whose side the gods were on. And so this was one way for them to promote peace amongst the conquered peoples. And there were various and competing worldviews. So philosophy in that time, you know, Aristotle, Plato, their philosophy is different from it is today, tucked away in a corner of a university. It's, it's an all-encompassing worldview, and people were obsessed with the newest and latest addition to those worldviews. And the, the passage mentions two in verse 18. We get Epicureans. Um, you can remember them by, it's helpful for me to just remember Epicureans as YOLO. You only live once. That's what they were about. And uh, the, the gods for them were very distant, in, far away, not to be bothered. And then the Stoics, you can remember them, just grin and bear it. Whatever happens, you just grin and bear it. And for them, the gods were in everything, pantheistic, which is very much like Madagascar. And they're not exactly thrilled to hear what Paul has to say. In fact, they call him a babbler. And so a little hesitant to hear what they say, to hear what Paul says. So what about um, Madagascar, particularly where we are, which is amongst the Sakalava people? What's their worldview? Well, it's full of fear. Their worldview is full, full of fear. Fear of being cursed by your ancestors. And because of that, doing whatever you can to manipulate the situation to bring a blessing and not a curse. Fear of, of not having enough, not having enough food, not having enough jobs, not having a house. All of this completely exacerbated by the pandemic. Fear of sickness, fear of death. You know, for my friends in Madagascar, COVID is just, what? Oh, it's a fever that kills you? Okay, we have seven of those, right? It's just one more thing added on. But what, what COVID did for the people there was just completely destroy the economy. Any little scrap of work that someone can get where I live from a tourist or showing them the lemurs or you know, uh, taking them to see the beautiful diversity of flora and fauna in Madagascar, that's just all been wiped away. So for someone who could possibly make $5 a week rowing tourists to the nature reserve so they could see all the animals, that's gone. And believe it or not, that $5 a week is a huge, huge thing, huge thing. So fear of sickness, death, and then fear of the spiritual world, of fear of every sacred tree, of every sacred rock, of every bad sign, fear of their ancestors, fear of what is coming next, fear of all the taboos that they have that they must keep in their head and constantly worry about. So the Sakalava's worldview is based off of fear. So what about here? What about your neighbor? What about your friend at school? What about the person that the Holy Spirit keeps putting in front of you? What's their worldview? It's important to know. So 
now let's, let's set the stage. So what's Paul's response as he strolls through these streets smothered in idols? Is he intimidated by the beautiful architecture around him? Um, is he timid about being in the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire? Well, look at verse 16. He's heartbroken. He's provoked in other translations, which is the same word, by the way, that is used for God. God is provoked by Israel's disobedience constantly, right? It's that same word. So he sets out to proclaim the gospel. He starts with, of course, always the Jews in the synagogue. And he also reasons with people in the marketplace. So a little street evangelism. And this street evangelism eventually brings him to Mars Hill, the place, the exclusive club of people who can think well, right? And they ask him to come and tell them about the new and exciting words that he has because they're obsessed with anything new to add to philosophy. So his priorities, how he spends his time in Athens, we can tell from the following verses that he's busy learning, studying, analyzing what's around him. His eyes are open, his head is up. He is learning about the culture that he finds himself in. And so let's look a little bit closer at this speech um, in verses 22 through 31. So Paul, he immediately, he uses what he has learned from the Athenian culture to try and build a bridge. He's building a bridge between that facet of God's truth and the worldview of the people around him. So he's taking something from their culture to begin his speech. He says in verses 21 through 24, um, excuse me, in verse 28, he says, yet it is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. He's taking their texts, their poems, their philosophy. He's taking what their culture has written and using it to build that bridge, to start the conversation, to begin by sharing something with which they would all be familiar, right? He also does that earlier on when he says, I was walking down the street and I saw this statue to the unknown God, right? So you have something here and you call it the unknown God. Now let me share who that is, right? So he's taking things that they know and using them to to tell the truth. Now, let me tell you about how we used some of these principles in Madagascar. We have an amazing music ministry, and we have some local musicians from our village who have made over, I think now, over 30 songs, um, worship songs, most of them directly from Scripture. And as far as we know, they're the only um, worship songs, songs about Christ, Christian songs, in that community, in the Sakalava people, in that part of Madagascar. So we, what, we, what we had done is we had stayed in our village, learned how to live simply with the people, invited people to hang out with us at our house, for one, just so that we could begin to learn their language. And so we invited these guys 
to our, our porch. My wife plays the guitar. They play the guitar excellently, but they don't really have a guitar. They kind of make their own. So they love to come and use uh, Rebe's guitar and hang out. And one day we were working on a piece of scripture from Daniel 3, and just a part where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship any other god except their own because he's the only one that knows how to save. That was the part of scripture that we were on. And we were trying to learn it in the Sakalava language. And looking back, it was obviously God. We didn't really fully process it at the time, but we said, hey, would you guys put this to music? It'll, be, it'll make it easier for us to learn. And so they were like, sure. They went up in Camden's treehouse for a while and put a song together, and about an hour later came back, and it was amazing, and it's like a light bulb went off. We're like, oh, this is, this is something, right? So we just kept feeding them scripture, and they kept giving us back songs. And each time we fed them scripture, it's kind of like having a one-on-one -on -one Bible study with these five guys who know nothing about the Bible, absolutely nothing. And they came to us one day and they said, these songs, they're, they're having an effect on us. They're making us want to live differently. And we were like, oh, that's, this is amazing. So we kept giving them songs. Eventually, we would give them whole pieces of scripture, for instance, the whole of Genesis 1. And we said, can you make this into like a story song? And it took them a while, and they came back with this amazing song just about creation. And then we had them make one about the fall from Genesis 3. And then we had to make one about Christ and redemption, both from Matthew and from Ephesians. And then we had them make one about the hope of that salvation and what will happen, kind of the reconciliation that Christ brings. And believe it or not, that's the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation. And so we had these four story songs that we could go out into villages and they would play and people could hear this truth, the whole truth, starting from the beginning for the first time in their own language. And music is so important in, in their culture because you know, most people cannot read and actually the, the Sakalava language is not very often written down, and so it's not really a written language. It's a very oral culture. And this completely changed how uh, our ministry went. It changed the effectiveness of everything. Those five guys have all become believers and are part of the church now. It's really an amazing thing that God has done. And so that's one way where taking something that they understand and know well can be a bridge to God's truth. So, as we look back at Paul here in Athens, Paul introduces a problem in verse 27 because he says, that God that you worship that's unknown, oh, he's known. And you need to understand that he's determined everything in the world. And in verse 27, he says, you should seek God. He wants you to seek him. Uh, in the hope that they can feel their way toward him and find him. And that, that feel their way toward him, it's, it's a picture of, of groping, right? Kind of a, a blind person groping to find where to go. 
It's also a really good image for the people there because their descendants, their heritage is Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. And, and Plato spent an enormous time describing uh, this cave that people must escape from in order to come out into the light of the good that's everywhere, the form of the good, right? So you had to escape this dark cave in order to find true understanding. And it's that same idea of groping, finding your way out of the darkness into the light. So Paul's doing two things there. He's relating things back to their culture, to their understanding, and explaining God's truth. And so he's teaching basically on the fall. He's teaching on sin and what we need to do because of that sin. But he's not using that word sin. Well, why? Well, there's several reasons. One, that word, the Greek word hamartia, that, while it means sin, where we can understand coming from a Christian worldview, in the Greek culture there, in the, in the Roman culture there, the pagan culture, that can convey different meanings. It has, it's wrapped up in fate, and it's less about what you must do and more about what has been done to you. And so there's a, there's a confusion that needs to be changed there. And so he quotes, like I said, from two different pagan Greek writers in order to build that bridge. And so an example I can give you from Nusi Bay about building bridges is, have you ever, who here has ever, when they were younger probably, um, become a blood brother with one of their friends? That was a thing we did when I was a kid. You know, you kind of prick yourself on the hand or something and exchange blood. Well, that also happens in Madagascar, but it's very important because for the Sakalava, really for any African that I've ever met, and I've met many from different countries, there's a, there's a different understanding of family than we have in America. And I think somewhere along the line, the Western culture has lost some of that. But for the Sakalava, Havanga, you can translate it, that as family, but it means so much more. And it's not just the people that are living, it's also your ancestors that have passed. This havanga is so important. And it's, it demarcates you from someone outside of the havanga. But you can become havanga through fatija, through an exchanging of blood. And so as we're speaking with people there about John 14 and how Jesus must go to prepare a place in his father's house so that he can receive you and you can be part of God's havanga, well, Fatidra is a very nice picture to give them to show what Jesus has done to make that possible because it's not possible to become Havanga without an exchange of blood, right? But for Jesus, we don't need to do anything. We don't, he doesn't need our blood. He sheds his blood for us so that we can become part of his Havanga. And so once he sets the stage, then he gives the true gospel, the true gospel. And it's what they need to hear at that moment, right? Because they don't have all the categories. And so if he were to say the same things that he said in the synagogue, it just wouldn't make sense. And so he says, the gospel is about one God, not many gods, one God. And it's about repentance and an understanding that you need to Sakalava need to hear. Well, they don't have a problem with resurrection. That's easy. 
you know, death is like walking through a door to another reality that's just as real, just as tangible. The resurrection is easy for them. What do they need to hear? They need to hear that Jesus is the only way to God, not their ancestors. They need to hear that Jesus is the only way to God. And they need to hear his words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary, right? All you who are full of fear, and I'll give you rest. They need rest. Brothers and sisters, his word does not come back void. It doesn't here at the Areopagus. Paul does his work, and God brings his people, right? God does the work of bringing his people to that reality. And in Nusi Bay, God does not come back void as well. In fact, even through the pandemic, some of the hardest years that people there have ever faced, the church has grown. We originally planted two churches. There are now four, and there's a church plant in another community on the island. And the music ministry is thriving. The sewing co-op that my wife, Rebe, started is doing well, even in the midst of the pandemic. They've still been able to have a fairly steady supply of work. And the most exciting thing is the Malagasy missionaries that we've trained. We now have four Malagasy missionaries. So these are people from Madagascar who are missionaries in their own country. And they are now leading the work on the island. And it's just amazing to see. And we can't thank you enough for how faith has come alongside us and supported us and partnered with us. And we're just so thankful for that. And just let me leave you with this. The presentation of the gospel needs to be rooted in the understanding of the hearer. And that's best done within relationship. And Paul's great at this. Paul stays. And when he leaves, he leaves behind people who can continue the work. Paul's all about relationship. And we should be too. He says in 1 Thessalonians that it was a joy not only to share the gospel, but also his life with the people there. And may we all be able to say the same thing wherever we are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your kingdom and how it advances everywhere. We thank you for your people and the people that you've brought in front of us. May we know how to communicate with them. May we know how to share your truth in a way that they can understand. We pray this in Jesus' name.